You're listening to the Charge Forward audio blog by Chargebacks 911, bringing you the latest in payments and fraud. To learn more about how Chargebacks 911 can help you reduce chargebacks and recover revenue lost to fraud, visit us online at chargebacks911.com. This episode is a replay of a webinar entitled A New Fraud Landscape, Navigating Online Fraud in the Wake of Global Disruption, featuring experts from Chargebacks 911 and SIFT. Right, great. Let's go ahead and get this started. It looks like we have a pretty full house, so I'm real excited about that. Um, just again, I want to welcome everyone to the webinar. Um, I really do appreciate uh, everybody taking the time out of their day to to be with us. Uh, my name is Jared Wright. I'm the marketing director here at Chargebacks 911. For those of you unfamiliar with Chargebacks 911, uh, we help merchants by identifying and preventing chargebacks before they happen, and by managing their disputes for chargebacks we were unable to prevent. Um, presenting today is our VP of Partner Engagement. His name is Don Bush. Don is a veteran for the pay- in the payment space, and I'm excited he could join us today because Don actually has a background in the fraud prevention space um, before he joined us here at Chargebacks 911. So I expect he'll have kind of a some unique insight on uh, today's topic. So thank you, Don, for joining us. Appreciate it. Great. And then uh, presenting from SIFT and backed by popular demand is Jeff. Uh, Saka Sagawa, who um, I have to say I really love having on our webinars, but I always dread having to pronounce his last name. How'd I do, Jeff? Very well. (laughs) I can say I... um... It's an unfortunate thing of having a name like that. I, I'm accustomed to people mispronouncing it, but you did a perfect job. So thank you for yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Well, once once you figure it out, it does it does sort of uh, read just like it just like it does pronounce just like you you think it would. But uh, but it's an intimidating last name for sure. Uh, Jeff is the trust and safety architect over at SIFT. Um, Jeff, do you want to just take a moment and tell us a little bit about what SIFT is all about? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, SIFT is a machine learning first company that tries to prevent um, all types of bad uh, events that happen online. So you can think of it, you know, in the spirit of fraud prevention, we're trying to prevent stolen credit card payments, card testing, um, account takeovers, um, and also uh, spammy and scammy content. So we just want to help out uh, companies democratize access to machine learning and uh, make it less scary, kind of like a trying to pronounce my last name. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I'm going to stop talking here for just a second, but w- real quick, first, um, I have a dumb question. Um, Jeff, I'm not sure if you remember, but uh, I made a commitment to myself to ask a real dumb question um, while I have the uh, opportunity to speak with different experts. I always hope my question isn't too dumb, or at least I'm not the only one wondering it, but I can't guarantee either. Are, are you game? Do you mind if I ask you kind of a dumb question off the top here? Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. Great. I actually thought um, a a lot about the question I was going to ask today. And honestly, my mind kept going back to a question that I'm wondering a lot recently. Um, And let me kind of explain. I think, you know, most of us have lived through at least two large events in the modern era. um, But I'm seeing reports of large spikes, you know, at least in the consumer fraud space um, that are apparently greater than um, just the type of uh, fraud that you would see following any other large event. There appears to me to be something sort of unique about this pandemic that is encouraging uh, fraudsters or is, or is making, uh, uh, you know, kind of having fraudsters come out of the woodwork. Um, is that what you guys are seeing too? Or is the rise in fraud simply just a consequence of a large event and similar to something that you might see, let's say, around the holiday time or something like that? Um, and, it, and I guess the follow-up, if, if, if it is different, what do you think it is about this pandemic that uh, makes it different? 
Um, so I guess basically, in other words, how big a deal is this whole thing? <laughs> yeah, I guess um, uh, my succinct answer will be it is a big deal. Um, and I think what we have noticed is just uh, how deep this has gone for certain verticals and certain businesses, um, especially think about those in um, entertainment, ticketing, um, travel. Um, it's been a really meaningful shift and a shift that has happened in just a tremendous amount of like, uh, with tremendous speed, excuse me. Um, like uh, for context, like we hired a new person on my team in early March. I was out in San Francisco for that. And uh, I think we, we quickly saw, um, just like everyone else has experienced, um, pretty immediate effects to um, businesses. Um, now, what's been interesting to that is it's kind of had some kind of a yo-yoing effect. Um, we've seen a lot of that around um, stimulus from the government. So that has introduced some increased spending, some return to businesses. But yeah, by and large, this is a wholly unique thing that I think we'll be talking about for a while. And I know Don and I will both cover um, how we can help people through that and how you may want to consider this as a unique event. That's great. I was I was hoping you to say no. It's no big deal. Nothing. There, there's no big problems. But um, but I, I I sort of suspected you wouldn't say that. <laughs> yeah. I, I appreciate you guys offering some insight today. And and with that, I'm going to hand this over to Don. Um, that's going to be um, uh, here for you for the rest of the webinar. So, uh, Don, you want to take it from here? Sure. Can you hear me? Okay, Jared. Yeah, I can. Terrific. Let's get started. And thanks again, Jeff, for joining us here. Um. I'm going to put my bent on that uh, question that Jared just asked about is how big is this thing? Um, it's unprecedented and we hear that word too often and I try not to use it, but it really is the speed at which things shut down and changed 60 days ago. We were talking about all kinds of other things today. We're talking about how to uh, protect our business, protect our merchant account, um, reduce our chargebacks, reduce fraud. You know, those are the top line things. 60 days ago, it was, what's our next promotion? Uh, how can we put stuff together, getting ready for summer vacations? Um, and the world turned upside down, really, in a very, very short amount of time. Uh, we're, we're gonna, I'm going to show you a couple of charts here, and I know Jeff's going to show you some that are probably more specific to data. But in talking with some of the card schemes and experts in the field, the impact across industries is um, indisputable. Now, uh, we hear a lot about travel and hospitality and uh, events, things that have been almost completely shut down. Uh, that has been uh, devastating. But on the other hand, there have been other areas where we've seen actually a rise in transaction volume. But on either side of that equation, we have seen a rise in chargebacks across the board. And we've experienced at Chargebacks 911 about a 23% month over month increase in chargebacks, which is, um, doesn't sound like a lot, but that's month over month, not year over year. And that means huge changes are going on right now. And with the delay and the lag sometimes in chargebacks, we don't expect that to get better soon uh, or back to normal soon. Uh, people that are seeing increases in transactions are actually seeing increases in chargebacks as well. But when you start looking at these industries, Moody's put this out and said, here's, here's our thought of 
high exposed industries, moderate and low exposure industries. Um, overall, I believe some of the numbers came out that said e-commerce, um, uh, e the, the space of e-commerce is growing actually more than people had anticipated. And it's training customers to do all kinds of things as we look at the landscape. This is something that uh, travel and entertainment, this is certainly not exact. You'll see some charts a little bit later, but this is kind of what happened. The pandemic hit, travel restrictions started coming on board and then travel bans and then all these things started happening. So your regular transaction volume dropped off dramatically and yet chargebacks increased dramatically. Um, it's a complete reversal of what we normally see. And this is an area where uh, an airline may see 50 chargebacks a month and now they're seeing 5,000. Uh, how do you manage that? How do you get through that? How do you protect cash and get those types of things uh, in line so that you'll have a business in the next couple of months as we start to hopefully pull out of this? On the other hand, we saw some other things uh, start to take place. Other online stores saw transactions actually increase, um, some decrease, but you look at that and you say, well, either way, chargebacks are increasing, and what do we do about that? Well, here's some liability things that we want to make sure that you take into consideration. Supply line interruption has been huge. Whether you're shipping to an area that is not affected uh, or getting products from areas that are affected, shipping line interruption has definitely slowed. Uh, consumer fear is on the rise. And, and I, I, I hate to use the word fear, but when you don't know what's going to happen over the next few days, weeks, or months, that promotes that fear of, gee, I better you know, pull out all the stops and make sure that um, I'm covered. We've had 30 million folks register for unemployment. That's a scary situation. And so that fear is driving a lot of behavior that we'll talk about here. Uh, customer support's been overwhelmed. Uh, if you get on the phone and try and call one of those affected industries or uh, any retailer right now, you're probably going to be put on hold for quite a while. If you try and get an email response or get on their chat lines or text, um, the response probably is not going to be very rapid. And this is another area that causes consumers to say, well, if I can't talk to them, I'm just going to call my bank. I'll just go online and charge this back. Um, so you see some of these chargeback liability factors. I don't need to go through every one of them. One of them we're going to talk today about specifically with Jeff is the increased fraud activity. Uh, fraudsters jump on these opportunities as a way to uh, line their pockets even more than normal, and we'll see some of that going through here. We want to make sure that current policies are adequate and well communicated. One of the issues that many consumers have is they don't know what the refund policy is. They don't know what the, the voucher or the credit policies are or the return policies. And when they don't know, again, their behavior goes into, I'll just call my bank. Um, those things need to be communicated really, really well as we start talking about how to mitigate chargebacks in some of these areas. Um, I'm going to leave the multi-layer fraud detection to Jeff. He'll go over that pretty well for you and answer those types of questions. But what we want to do here, I think there's a couple of really um, top line things that we can do. 
things like notifying customers. If you notify a customer that the shipment that they were going to get today isn't going to come in until Monday, well, they might not be as pleased as punch, but they're probably not going to call their bank and charge it back. If they don't know about that delivery delay, there's a really good chance that they will call their bank and charge that back. Um, using alternative ways of communicating with your customer. If you can text them, if you can send them an email, um, depending on what it is, maybe even using snail mail. Other things like, what can I do to provide alternates to refunds? Can I put a voucher in place? Can I put a credit in place? Can I do other things that allow me to reserve cash and still satisfy a customer? That's really what we're trying to do here is protect our business in a way that not only do we come out of this in business and ready to go, but a way that we can manage customer expectations and make them happy that they're still a customer. Some of the things that we see um, going through here is when you've got customers that are scared and trying to reserve cash, the behavior becomes, I looked at my visa statement and I may um, call my bank and charge back some things, legitimately or illegitimately. Um, we're changing those behaviors. When we don't answer the phone quickly or we don't respond quickly, we're, we're changing the consumer's behavior to go ahead and make that charge back. There are several pieces of guidance that are out there today. Um, this is just a few of them. There's a lot more. We could spend an entire hour talking about some of the guidance that's out there. But dispute monitoring and fraud monitoring programs are suspended for merchants in the travel and entertainment industry. And what that means is it's not going away, but they've been somewhat suspended because of the topsy-turvy methods uh, or, or experience that they're having. There's no way you can keep a 1% chargeback rate when there are no transactions coming through and everybody's charging back. They're trying to do things to help. They're not getting rid of the rules, but they're trying to uh, suspend the uh, application of those rules in more than just the travel and entertainment industry. Um, remember that government law supersedes card rules. If I've got a lockdown and uh, I happen to be in the state of Idaho, if they lock down or say that I can't do certain things by law, Visa can't override that and say my rules are uh, superseding that. So those things need to be made clear if that's the situation that you're running into. Um, issuers have been asked to encourage cardholders to get with their merchants directly before initiating a dispute. That doesn't happen very often, but it's been forced by this particular pandemic. Um, and then the last one I think is clear across the board. There have not been any changes to core dispute rules or processing procedures. Even though they might be suspending or allowing things for 30 or 60 or 90 days, those rules have not gone away. They're not extending the deadlines. They're not... Um, uh, overreacting when it comes to chargeback versus transaction or dollar volume, those have not been suspended yet. Or excuse me, those have not been changed. Uh, in some industries, they've been suspended, but that's it. So uh, there's 
these things are changing on a daily basis. If you want to know more about these things, feel free to uh, log into chargebacks911.com. Uh, There's a whole little area there on what's happening with your chargebacks during the COVID-19 issue. Contact a rep. They'll be happy to walk you through some of these things. But what we wanted to try and do today is dispel some of the myths, some of the fear uh, with knowledge. And so we've got uh, a lot of time here for Q&A as we get ready to go on. I'm going to pass the torch over to Jeff um, and let him take it from here before we head over to Q&A. Jeff, it's all yours. Excellent. Thanks, Don. Yeah, um, a lot of great info there. I think um, I'll touch a lot on um, some similar topics, maybe with some examples uh, based on my experience. And just like Don said, um, we're really looking forward to some and any questions you might ask. So please do send those in and um, I'll try to talk quickly so we can get to those. So um, I kind of wanted to talk through, you know, specific verticals that have been hit, um, how this relates to uh, fraud prevention and how you might be running your program now and in the future. And then also um, programmatically, like how can we use this information? Um, how can we make it actionable? How do I operationalize these things and, and move forward within this environment where things are relatively uncertain? So, yep, uh, let's talk about those verticals. Now, um, one thing I think we've all observed is an impact on uh, travel and entertainment. Uh, Walt Disney just had their earnings call yesterday. That was pretty impactful. Um, I included this uh, headline from uh, the San Francisco Bay Area um, because I think it did a good job of encapsulating um, what we're seeing in the graph, right? Um, you know, uh, the TSA is screening about 96% fewer people than this time last year. Um, we've, uh, per the graph you're seeing here, within SIF's own data, we've seen similar drops within that industry. Um, you know, for, for the period, it's uh, around like an 80 to 90% decline in event volume, which is really meaningful. And as you also saw in Don's um, graphics, um, we're also seeing this mapped to that increase in fraud rate, right? So uh, the, the math here works really unfavorably in merchants' favors because you have a transaction volume that's decreasing um, precipitously. Um, and also uh, you're having um, fraud and chargeback disputes in increasing over that same period. So, so really quite tough. Secondly, um, uh, when you think about uh, entertainment, uh, sports specifically, um, we've seen this a lot within our ticketing vertical. So, it, you know, it doesn't have to be sports specifically, but you can think about concerts, um, you know, uh, Memorial Day is coming up, normal like parade or just like civic events that you might go to. Um, these have really been impacted as well. Um, I know uh, we've also seen a pretty steady decline here within SIP's environment. Again, uh, those double-digit losses in event volume. Um, and what I think becomes a larger question is, um, you know, even as restrictions by certain localities open up, um, what will give consumers comfort to actually go back into the market? Um, you know, is that a couple months from now? Is it not until next year? These are kind of big unknowns and something that we'll try to navigate until that becomes uh, more sure of folks. Um, but again, um, I think like we talked about in Jared's introduction, 
really seeing a steep decline in some of these industries, uh, mapped also with an increase in fraud rate, um, which is really unfortunate. Um, I know uh, Don's phrasing was, uh, fraudsters like to line their pockets. That's very true. Um, I know uh, the Federal Trade Commission, for example, um, came out with some statistics at the end of last month that there's already been around $13 million um, related to coronavirus and COVID um, scams. These are related to, you know, um, cures, unfortunately, um, fake fundraisers, um, promises on expedited stimulus checks. So really playing on um, people's emotions and like real need for, you know, um, financial help at a time. So, um, if you didn't already have enough reasons to hate fraudsters, um, you can add the coronavirus to that list. Um, now, one thing that is important for a lot of the people on the call is, hey, we understand this is happening in the environment. It may be happening to my business. Um, how does this affect my ability to fight, fight fraud on my platform? So um, one thing we've noticed, and again, you can kind of see on the right-hand side here, this is just a Google trend search on contact delivery, or contactless delivery, excuse me. Um, the manner with which um, our customers' customers are engaging with them has really changed, right? So if you think about uh, curbside pickup, buying online, picking up in store, leveraging delivery, um, all of these methods um, are really increasing in popularity. Um, contactless payment methods too, as well. Um, so when you think about, you know, a traditional retailer may expect some percentage of your business to be represented here, and then having that change essentially overnight, um, you start to ask questions, hey, maybe we didn't have as stringent as fraud controls there because it was never a large book of our business. And that's changed. So how, how are we addressing it now, right? Um, that, that becomes a big thing, especially um, as some of these transactions shift to an online environment and may honestly stick with that uh, for the you know, indefinite period that we're, we're looking forward to. Now, um, one way I thought I might visualize this is something that we're all experiencing in our day-to-day -day lives. Um, kind of thinking about the empty shelves you might be expecting or running into as you shop for necessities at the moment. And thinking about, on the right-hand side, um, what we're kind of accustomed to, right? Like, hey, I'm used to be going out to a pharmacy, a grocer, um, just a restaurant, getting what I need and, and getting out, right? So how this relates to fraud prevention is, again, um, your systems, uh, you know, your rule sets, if you're using machine learning, um, your training may be based on the image on the right. Um, there are certain conditions you expect to happen in the market. Um, you have an understanding of seasonability, um, some kind of variance, but um, what happens when you're looking at the picture on the left, right? Um, do the existing rules that you have still map or make sense? Um, are your models changing quickly enough to account for this new reality? Or, um, you know, we kind of have it phrased here as erratic behavior, um, but it can really be driven by, you know, hey, I just need to get um, hand sanitizer, or um, there was, you know, recent news reports around maybe there's going to be a run on proteins and uh, meats. So um, is that going to drive sales? Uh, all of these things, uh, you know, 
really require some evaluation. And the unfortunate thing is I imagine a lot of merchants are feeling some pressure where I may not have time to do that. Um, so, you know, how, how do I really find the ability to tune these things, um, find help when, when I really need it? And hopefully we'll, we'll address these on the upcoming slides. Oops, excuse me. Um, one thing I can tell you uh, we've observed uh, within the SIFT environment is around, you know, particular items. And I think if you kind of look back in the past few weeks, you may, uh, these may make sense to you just from a common sense perspective. So, you know, certain items went quickly around, you know, toilet paper that can still be a little hard to get truthfully, um, cleaning supplies. And then um, as, you know, the impacts kind of increased as we had more weeks uh, operating in this environment, um, outdoor goods became uh, really popular, um, fishing gear, um, bikes, um, even if you're indoors, you know, maybe like puzzles or something to occupy yourself. Um, we saw that a lot with kind of like baking goods too. And now um, I'm thankful the video is not on for this webinar. Um, I'm in dire need of a haircut, but we're also seeing a lot of run on grooming goods again uh, for things people might be doing um, at their home, uh, trying to you know regain some sense of normalcy or, or, or jazz things up a little bit. So like I talked about in the past visual, um, this should spur certain questions you should be asking yourself and honestly needing to make some time on uh, to, to evaluate, right? Um, what's our new normal? Um, what, is, what is our model or models trained on? Like what, what presumptions did we have? Um, because honestly, a lot of those presumptions may be rendered um, moot at this point. So again, it makes sense to uh, reevaluate your program. And again, um, if there are some things that don't require the sophistication of machine learning, you just need to put in some rule to account for what's happening now. Um, these are things you could be doing like in the moment, um, hopefully if your system can support that, right? Um, so a simple one could be um, limiting the quantity of certain goods ordered, right? I think we're all accustomed to seeing those signs, um, you know, with respect to eggs or milk, flour, spaghetti, stuff like that. Um, in an online environment, you can restrict inventory in that way too. Um, you know, people may want a higher quantity, um, but I think what a lot of times we've seen, even in a non-COVID environment, is higher quantity orders um, are things that, you know, fraudsters are generally attracted to um, because they can find an ability to resell those goods at, at a profit, right? So hopefully we won't have any hoarding there. Um, one small change that you can make, which hopefully will have some benefit for your business. So let's talk about best practices. Again, how can we operationalize what we've been talking about thus far? How can you, you know, work within these constructs? So um, Don mentioned this, and I can't emphasize it enough, um, over-communicate. Um, in your business, this has to go upwards to um, management, downwards to your frontline staff, and then outwards to your customers, right? Um, there's so much uh, misinformation or presumption at the time. So you really need to do uh, your part in setting expectations appropriately. Um, how quickly can we respond to customers now? Um, how many reviews can we order? What should we expect um, as the number of uh, orders we might decline, for example? Is that consistent, um, but it just looks worse because less orders are coming through the door, right? Um, these are things that you wanna stay on top of. Second, um, I speak about this as a, as a former compliance professional. Um, documentation can be really important. Um, 
I think everyone has a sense of like Corona time. Like I can't believe all this happened in eight weeks. When you think about your business environment too, so many things I have to imagine have changed as well. And in the moment you may have an awareness of it, but it may be tough to walk back all of those weeks. And more importantly, why you made certain business decisions for your fraud program, why you're reviewing certain away, why you're allowing certain things, why you made certain changes um, as these things start to compile and um, in aggregate, it becomes a bigger change for your business. Lastly, um, this sounds awful. This is kind of like the eating your vegetables talk track, but um, honestly, we just need to plan for the worst. Um, Don talked about uh, increased customer service times. Like I think we're all seeing that when you're talking to your bank or you know any other you know customer facing uh, service organization because their staff stretched thin, right? Um, they're they're practicing social distancing too. So think about that now. Um, hey. If we are operating at this capacity now, what if, heaven forbid, someone gets sick, um, internet connectivity isn't reliable, um, we need to make tough business decisions and actually reduce staff? Um, how do we account for those circumstances? Again, these don't have to be fully flushed out, but at least you know, setting yourself up to knowing who to notify, um, how you plan to handle it. Again, probably not in the best circumstances you want, but how are you gonna navigate the day-to-day? And hopefully um, on a more optimistic point for my last bullet, how do we return things to normal? How these changes we unwinded, um, these um, efforts we made, again, see my documentation point, um, how do we wanna start unwinding these things? Um, maybe to use an analogy from the economy, you know, we wanna reopen things. We wanna get people out and back. Um, how are you gonna reopen, quote unquote, your fraud program is, is a really important thing to consider too. Well, oops, that's a left arrow. I'll do a right arrow, so we'll we'll go, you know, moving forward. Now, um, again, I apologize if this comes off as uh, not very empathetic or insincere, but you know, how can we try and make some lemonade here, uh, given the environment we're all working in? Um, I know certain things that uh, may be helpful, or when you think about it, is just an efficiency gain. Uh, of course, this is being forced on a lot of businesses and environments, but um, I think everyone has something at their job they don't like to do, or they do with some regularity. Um, are these things that we can automate out? Um, how can we find some kind of hack, some kind of way to do it better, more quickly? Um, evaluating that's really important. Secondly, um, budgets are, I'm, I'm sure at every company under extreme scrutiny at the moment. So there's probably ways that you can find to trim the fat, again, do things um, in a more cost-effective way. Um, because again, you may have relied on volumes that you had to cover these costs. In the absence of that, you have to have a tough decision and conversation around how we actually are gonna do this better. And then third, like I said, um, kind of addressing those needs that you may have had historically. Um, you know, I, I worry when I hear about layoffs at companies and trust and safety professionals getting um, let off. A lot of the times, they're those folks that are, um, you know, keeping the buses and trains running on time. And in the absence of those things, I have every assurance that um, complications and issues are going to rise, right? So, um, in the absence of those things, um, again, it's not great you're experiencing it. It's not great for your customers, but it does give you feedback that, hey, this is something that needs addressing. So let's let's um, try and do that as as best we can. So lastly, and I'll try and wrap this really quickly so we can get to Q&A, 
um, I think this becomes like a big question for folks like, hey, how do I balance still trying to run my fraud program, but still allowing, um, you know, orders and customers to log in all of these things, right? Um, it's, it's nice to see those big upticks in volumes that Don was showing us, right? Um, hopefully you can presume some positive intent, intent, but like verify those things. Should we be expecting it? Does it make sense for our business? In that sense, um, you may be used to some volatility based on seasonal events, but again, um, do your due diligence to understand that better. Uh, secondly, again, communicating to customers, really important. Don't let them dictate what is uh, happening, how you should respond. You know, Make your business policies clear and then work with, um, and help them understand those and work with them through that. Third, for fraud professionals, um, again, uh, don't let your fraud metrics mislead. Um, the, the things are going to spike week over week, if not day over day, right? So let's not react too much in the moment. And again, understand how larger macro events are affecting your business. And lastly, um, this could be a really good time to reevaluate the manner in which you communicate with customers. Um, language that may seem cold or very businesslike may need softening. Um, you may need to actually acknowledge, um, you know, COVID, uh, you know, Don talked about it with suppliers, right? How is that affecting your business and how will that affect your customers? Highlighting those things can be really important and hopefully buy you some goodwill. Um, with that, um, I'm going to hand it back to Jared. Um, I know we have some Q&As, um, but thanks for your attention thus so far and uh, looking forward to answering some questions. All right, thanks, Jeff. That was that was that was great. Um, okay, let's just go ahead and hop into these questions. We had a lot of questions, so I'm gonna try to get to as many as we can. Um, the first one was, uh, what practices would you prioritize in order to be the most proactive towards preventing chargebacks? Um, Don, do you have you have some tips? Uh, do you have a good way to answer this question? Certainly. Um, one of the things you want to look at is what is your current uh, customer policies like refunds, returns, um, uh, exchanges, um, vouchers, credits. Look at those things and make sure that those are clearly stated for every purchase that is made. Um, secondly, I'd put in practice something that allows me, we've talked about communicate, communicate, communicate. Well, I'd say communicate again. If there's any disruption in delivery, if there's a disruption in um, Whatever the issue is, I'd make sure that that gets communicated really, really well. Third, I would take a look at my chargebacks right now. Uh, I'm going to answer two questions in one here because I saw one come across with this, Jared, so I'm going to try and do this. Um, do you know where your chargebacks are coming from? After years and years of doing this and literally tens of millions, if not more, chargebacks that Chargebacks 911 has dealt with, we have boiled it down to three areas where your chargebacks are going to come from. One is criminal fraud, just like Jeff was talking about earlier. Criminal fraudsters are going to try and take advantage of you. You want to know what portion of your chargebacks are coming from criminal fraud. The second one is what we call merchant error. This may be, I didn't communicate well. I have a faulty customer policy. Um, I, they ordered green and I delivered blue. Um, or on my visa statement, it says, you know, XYZ123, and the customer has no idea what co company that is, calls their bank and gets it taken off their bill. That's what we would call merchant error. Those things merchants can fix. 
And then the last one is friendly fraud. And this is what we think is the largest segment of the chargeback market, and that is friendly fraud. Uh, whether people are gaming the system and calling their bank and uh, you know cyber shoplifting, so to speak, uh, or whether it's a valid uh, issue, that friendly fraud is a huge portion of chargebacks today. We look at it at about 60 to 70% of chargebacks are a friendly fraud problem. Um, the best way to find out where those are coming from so you can put in strategies in place is to have what we call an audit. We look at errors, threats, um, and uh, risks, errors, risk, and threats. And we run through those and we'll do that audit for you to show you where those things are. Until you do that, you're kind of guessing at, uh, at where those chargebacks are coming from and how best to prevent them. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Don. I think I think definitely, and, and Jeff, maybe you could speak to this a little bit, but one of the things that we see a lot is that people um, <clears throat> people don't have a super solid sense of um, why a chargeback happened, and they use um, chargebacks, just, just raw chargeback data, to try to train um, or try to optimize their fraud prevention um, systems. And and one of the things that, that we see there is that, you know, if you have a lot of false positives, if you, if you have chargebacks that you're considering are coming from criminal fraud, um, and they're actually due to a different, you know, a friendly fraud type that's a little bit harder to identify, um, you may be using that, and you may be sending SIFT some data that, that they're not, um, that, that isn't ultimately, uh, you know, helping your business. Um, you might be training your systems incorrectly. So, um, Jeff, is that something you guys deal with, or is that, is that not, you guys kind of work a little bit different than that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, we're always putting a lot of emphasis on having an awareness of what's for training the model on. Uh, not to get sidetrack us too much, but you know, I think if you talk to merchants, they may have qualms with how certain chargebacks are uh, classified by reason code to begin with. There's some uh, distrust there. Uh, so in a similar vein, um, really doing a deep investigation of understanding, um, you know, these three verticals like Don was talking about. Can we categorize them appropriately? And then again, uh, what do we want to train a model on on that that real fraud? Um, and you know, how can we prevent that as much as possible and not you know commingle these things you know where appropriate? Great. All right. Um, this next person said, uh, how can we trace fraudulent card use faster to detect fraud earlier? Um, Jeff, what would you say to um, uh, Ahmed? Yeah, um, thanks Ahmed for the question. Um, I think the answer is kind of in the question, uh, specifically earlier. Um, I know a lot of us are using a traditional loss prevention unit at a, a physical store. You know, like if there's a shoplifter, um, you know, uh, maybe they, you know, are kind of loitering around a, a certain item. Maybe they open a jacket and, and well in advance of the time they get the register or try to get out of the store, you have a sense like something's off and then maybe physical security like, um, you know, uh, starts starts to do their work. Um, I would suggest the same thing in an online environment, really working pre-authorization ahead of that charge. Um, there's a wealth of information that you could be using to detect fraud faster and earlier, right? Um, so instead of the shifty loitering thing, it could be time on a certain web page or, you know, um, we talked about quantity of goods ordered. Are those fluctuating? Um, does someone go quickly to the most expensive item uh, in your inventory? Um, IP intelligence, device intelligence can be really important things here too. So really use um, non-payment data 
um, upstream to help inform your ability to catch this fraud um, before a charge even hits your system. Mm. That, that's interesting, Jeff. And, and so the just functionally, the way that that works, um, do you so 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 do you do you actually just prevent them from checking out at all, or do you just use that additional data to maybe um, maybe inform your ultimate decision? So as to that's say, if everything else is super legit seeming, you know, how, how does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, to be somewhat difficult, I'll say it always depends on the merchant, you know, what they're comfortable right. with. Um, but um, what I would say is, yeah, verifying your customer mid-flow can be a great thing, or um, you can kind of change the experience that they have, right? Um, I know certain times on Amazon, I haven't entirely figured this out, but um, sometimes they'll ask me to re-input my entire credit card uh, information before I'm allowed to purchase instead of a one click. So I've clearly tripped something. Um, it's not too much of an inconvenience and then I verify myself and I move on. Um, that's something merchants can experience with. Um, and also it, it's really important for merchants to get ahead of this now because again, um, I think most companies that have a physical presence could always rely on that. Like, hey, um, we can't service you online, meet us at the store and we'll take your your uh, like a card present transaction in an increased absence of that you really need to address it online sure all right great okay the next question is um why are some card schemes um other than visa or mastercard not rejecting um chargebacks for events uh, rescheduled due to government regulations i didn't have a lot of information about this um don did you have a did you have a sense of uh, you know what what you know some non some, some of the other card schemes out there are doing you know, um, the rules change so so dramatically between Discover and Amex and uh, some of the others that are out there. It's hard to to throw a blanket over all of it and say this is why they're doing it. Um, partly, it could be just their systems aren't set up for that. You know, when we the the chargeback system itself was designed in 1974, uh, far beyond far before computers and the internet and all this digital stuff. And if they're not up to speed on that, you still have an old system trying to handle a 21st century problem. The other thing is uh, never forget that there's always people behind a chargeback um, uh, representment. Somebody has to make a decision. It's not all automated yet. Um, quite honestly, they should be rejecting that. But when you start looking at, government regulations, temporary policies, state-to-state -state policies changing, country-to-country -country policies changing, um, it gets extremely complex. And so what most of these schemes do is fall back on, this is the rule, this is where we're standing by, unless you can show me evidence, then this is what we're going to stand by. Um, earlier, there was a question on here, uh, somebody was asking about a hotel getting chargebacks from two years ago. Well, they're winning 100% of them, but they're still getting a chargeback. That should never happen. Somebody has put a, you know, broken the system so that chargeback is coming through. It should be rejected on its face after uh, whatever, 180 days. Um, but that stuff still happens. In this, my recommendation is just to make sure you've got really good documentation so that when you do dispute it, you're going to win it. Yeah, yeah, those are all really good points too. And I think I think it's important to remind people that you know when when somebody files a chargeback, they don't call Visa, they call their 
um, you know, issuing bank. Uh, so, so a visa makes a rule. The people that are issuing bank sometimes there's a some, some um, it takes a little bit of time for the their internal rules and their internal decisioning and their sort of the way that they train their their employees and things like that. Um, it takes some time before those uh, rules are actually adopted or reflected in the way that the that bank is going to be handled. So. Um, You're right, Jared, and Jeff made a really good point as well. It was, you know, every chargeback is coded, but, you know, look at that code as um, this is where the issuing bank started. Just because it's coded fraud or coded this does not mean that's exactly what happened. Um, And so I I wouldn't get in the habit of trusting those codes uh, on their face. All right. This one is, uh, how is SIFT adjusting to the new environment? Um, how do pre-post-COVID fraud attempts in the United States compare to the rest of the world? Um, do, you, do you have any data or any insight into that, uh, Jeff? Yeah, um, yeah, and thanks, Ron, for asking the question. Um, yeah, we are, obviously, we're all working remote, so that's that's been a big change for us. But um, I think we are really accelerating a lot of things we've always done historically. So, you know, making sure models are up to date, um, that our thresholds are appropriate. Um, really, um, like we've, I mean, this is probably the umpteenth time we've talked about it, uh, communication becomes really important um, at the moment too, right? Uh, giving a sense of what's happening, why things are changing, and then, you know, what we're doing with it. Um, and to the second question, um, so we we do have a global reach. Um, I think what's been interesting for us to observe by region is really how much um, shelter in place um, from a governmental perspective, like I'll touch that on that from like a visa and scheme perspective, um, just from a consumer purchasing perspective, it really does have a meaningful impact on um, how much volume may be going through a system, or it may be more regional than uh, you know what might have traditionally been cross-border. Um, so I think what we're seeing in fraud attempts is definitely an influx coming in the door. Um, some normalization as you know people just get accustomed to the new normal, or businesses adjust their you know their fraud programs. And then honestly, um, your guess is as good as mine for what will happen next week or a month from now, but hopefully we'll do our, our, our best job to, to keep on top of that too. Great. Okay, because um, yeah, we got about 10 minutes left. I'm gonna go all the way to the uh, top of the hour so we can get another couple of these questions in. Um, this, this person wanted to know, how can we reduce fees incurred from friendly fraud when we only sell or non, non-refundable services? So I guess this, this, um, this person feels like you know, they, refunding is is not going to be an option for them. Um, so they they know that they're going to, um, you know, have some degree of friendly fraud that they need to combat. Um, and I guess the idea is that they're winning the chargeback. So is there something they could do to mitigate those fees? Do you, do you have um, you know, you have insight there? Yeah, right off the bat, I've got one uh, suggestion that you might look into. I don't know if it's been mentioned yet, but uh, Visa and MasterCard. Visa's had a program out called BMPI. It's Visa Merchant Purchase something or other. Um, And uh, what it does is if you are a merchant that's enrolled in BMPI and somebody calls their bank, their bank can within two seconds grab the information that surrounds that particular transaction and make a better decision when the consumer is right there on the phone. Now, 
You can provide a refund through VMPI, but you can also provide data, which means the issuer is going to have the data that you would use for, or a lot of the data that you would use for a documenting a representment. Here's the delivery form. Here's the payment type. Here's the agreement that they signed. Here's our refund policies. Um, and if the issuing bank has that at their fingertips, we've seen that stop dispute or chargeback um, uh, being put in place uh, as high as 60% in some industries. Generally speaking, it's about 15 to 20, 25%, but in other industries, it's extremely high. Uh, and these types of services can help um, reduce those friendly fraud and charge back things uh, before they ever get to you. So that, that would be one I'd say to look into um, right away because it's, uh, it, it's a great service. And I think uh, MasterCard will be coming out with theirs real soon. It's kind of a wave of the future. We want to see that stuff happen. And it deflects those chargebacks before they ever get registered. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't even think about that. Um, I, I was gonna, I was gonna give the advice, um, de depending on how high their um, uh, chargeback ratio is. I mean, if if, if chargebacks are fairly infrequent, um, something that they could do is, you know, research processors, research acquiring banks, um, and uh, comparison shop. Because one of the things I think a, a, a misunderstanding that people have is that the, those chargeback fees are one, a lot of times if you're big enough, they're negotiable, um, but they're not they're not charged necessarily by Visa. I think there is some trickle down where there is an ultimately a fee that that is standardized. But um, the fee that you get charged as a merchant is usually, um, a, you know, it's been they, they've, they've tacked on some additional fees as that as that chargeback passes through the system. Um, so, uh, you know, comparison shop, the, those fees, I don't think it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to get rid of them entirely unless you're doing a ton of business. Um, but, um, um, you can definitely negotiate and you can definitely find a, a better deal out there if, if you're willing to spend the time. It's a good point, Jared. It's also, um, you know, we talked earlier about doing one of those audits, errors, risk, and threats. That would be an area to say, Hey, how can we reduce fees there as well? Yeah, absolutely. So just, just get in contact with us. We can help you with any of that stuff. Okay. Um, this next uh, person want to know what should we look out for in order to catch fraud attempts early. Um, this sort of Jeff, I'm gonna I'm gonna skip this question if you don't mind. I think I feel like we kind of talked about this um, a couple of questions ago. Yeah, no worries. We can, we can get to some some new stuff here. Um, how can I know where my chargebacks are coming from? Um, we just did that one too. Um, what do you do if a credit card's issuing country doesn't match the address country provided by the uh, the customer? Jeff, do you have some insight there? Yeah, um, I think a couple things to consider is um, based on your business, uh, you know, are you, should you expect some cross-border payments might be kind of the existential question. Like, do you operate in these regions? Um, is your product available there? Um, uh, seeing where this question was sourced from, let's, let's presume that is the case. Um, I think what you want to do is kind of find um, simple explanations to explain a mismatch that you actually want to permit because there is going to be good activity where um, the uh, issuing bin country is going to be inconsistent with the address. Um, one I saw at Square all the times was um, the armed forces. So if you have an American um, that uh, lives in Alabama, but they might be deployed in Germany or South Korea, right? Um, simple thing there where, you know, hey, there may be a, a mismatch provided, um, but, you know, something we want to pursue. 
Um, you may ask yourself if it's the converse, right? So it's, uh, hey, um, we have a US address, but um, an internationally issued bank. Like, are you expecting that really where you might expect an American citizen to get their banking from? Um, worth investigating. Um, also, one thing that I know I've seen a lot from fraudsters is they will oftentimes uh, manipulate address fields just to see what your forms will accept. Um, you know, putting the address or the street name in front of the house number, things like that. So these may not be true mismatches. It may be fraudsters kind of just manipulating your system as a way to avoid um, ABS checks. So take a look at that. And then um, lastly, um, something you may want to consider is not over-indexing towards this one signals exactly. Again, um, there's probably going to be a lot of good customers, orders, etc., which will satisfy this criteria. So what additional information can you provide, get access to, that'll inform your ability to um, allow good things to happen on your system, even if, if this one mismatch is present? Okay, great. All right, so I'm going to ask one more question, and then, um, and then I'm going to uh, click back up to the to the uh, first screen so I can put uh, these guys' email address back up. Uh, if anybody today has any questions or um, wants wants any follow-up information, you can just reach out to one of these guys. Um, last question is, uh, how banks are handling the dispute workload? Um, are banks being more lenient to merchants or to cardholders? Don, do we have any information on that? Yeah, there's some information on that, but it's still a little bit foggy. Um, banks... I think one of the first things that they've started to do is say, hey, please contact your merchant. You know, take this up with the merchant. That's that's a huge shift that has not happened in the past, at least not very much. But one of the things they've said is, hey, this dispute, have you tried calling the merchant first? Um, so fortunately or unfortunately, they're trying to push that back to the merchant. Um, the second thing is they are trying to do some things to over um, – to manage the overload, putting more people on there, things like that, they have said in certain industries, and again, this is an industry by industry, they, have, um, they haven't removed the rules, but they've been somewhat lenient and suspended certain rules, at least for a period, which is still undefined. Um, so that, I don't know if that adds uh, color or fog to the question that you asked, Jared, but I think they are trying uh, within the systems that they have without overriding too much. Uh, if you had a fraud problem or if you had a chargeback problem in February and you have one today, um, that's going to be an issue. If you were working well and flowing well back in February and today has been disrupted, there's some uh, opportunity for leniency. Um, I know we're at the top of the hour, Jared. I just want to, well, if you did ask a question, we didn't get to it. We will follow up with you and make sure those get get answered. We want to make sure that uh, we answer any of the questions. So if you have any questions, write them in now. We'll make sure that we get back to you and uh, get you what you need. Thanks, Jared. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys for coming. Um, and thank you. Thank you, everyone, for uh, sticking with us today. We appreciate it. We're, we're always happy with, to have uh, people show up and listen to us talk. I put the um, email addresses from the guys back up on the screen. So if anybody wants to follow up specifically with either Don or Jeff, um, if they end up not being the right person for you to talk to, I'm sure that they will be happy to make an introduction for you. So I, I appreciate everyone. Um, thank you again. Um, bye, Jeff. Thanks, guys. Thank you.